I don't think uh, anybody that was alive in 20, 2010, August 5th, will ever forget that event that took place in Chile where that mine collapsed and you had 33 miners that were trapped deep in the heart of the earth. They were actually down there 2,257 feet. Their ways of, being, of escape were completely blocked and they were somewhat nearby this like emergency room that had been prepared for tragedies like this. However, when they were so far down in that mine, the likelihood of any rescue would seem absolutely impossible. Uh, they had close to where they were actually trapped was a emergency storeroom in which there was uh, supplies, food that was enough to keep them alive for about two to three days. But being so far from the surface, it would seem highly unlikely that they would be saved. And yet these miners, all 33 of them, decided that they were going to give it a go to see how long they might be able to last. And so they, they took their rations and they took it, and this is how, what they did. They had two little spoonfuls of tuna, a sip of milk, and a biscuit every 48 hours, and then a, and a little slice of peach from these canned peaches. And that's how they survived. Day one, two, it kept going, 12, 13. When they ran out of food, uh, they were starting to hear, they could hear a drilling sound, and yet they didn't know if they would be able to be alive <laughs> by the time that that drill would actually hit where they are. Day 17, though completely without food, all of a sudden that there was a drill bit, a large one, that had been boring a hole from the surface 2,257 feet down to where they were, and that drill bit came to a stop when it hit where they should be. They went and started beating on that drill bit. And they had, been, because they'd heard it, they had actually started writing notes and letters. And they took... Uh, tape that they had and they actually fastened it to this drill bit and because they were hearing this beating noise the operators up top like they're, they're hearing some sort of tapping sort of noise they pulled the bit out and when they did there were these letters and they took them and they read them and they realized that in fact indeed all 33 of these miners which they had assumed were dead were still alive and this this hole this hole that they bore it became a lifeline they gave them, obviously, food, water, medicine, everything they would need to survive because the hole was way too small to get any human out of. And so they would need to actually make a much larger one in order to extract them. And so they somehow had to keep these miners alive. And so they did. 68 to 69 days into it, on October 13th, the last one was pulled out of that hole. That, that lifeline was everything to them. It's what kept them alive physically. I tell you this because, you know, life sometimes can be extremely painful and difficult. The adversity that we sometimes face is overwhelming. There are difficulties, discouragements. There are oftentimes needs placed upon us that are way beyond our abilities. And I speak from personal experience. I mean, I've got difficulties. I got some pretty big unknowns. There are times that what is required of me is far greater than I know that I've got. And I'm sure you can relate. We all face these times that are distressing, throw us into depression. The calls of what is required are far more than what we have. And the question comes, how do you and I really live and grow when we face adversity? 
I know, just kind of looking around here, some of you are going through some depth right now. You are barely here. You are holding it together. And you've got that question, how do you live and grow when you're facing adversity? And I've got the word for you. You ready? It's lifeline. Our Lord is our lifeline. You know, how crazy would it have been if those miners were like, yeah, we got that big hole there and we, we see this, this hole that's been bored. But we're, we're going to kind of try to do it on our own. We, we don't really need the resources that are coming through that hole. We're, we're going to go another route. That would be crazy, right? Well, why is it that when we go through our difficulties and our challenges and we're facing our adversity and God has a clear lifeline and that is the Lord himself that we're like, eh, I, I mean, I know that, but I'm going to try to do it my other way. Friends, that is crazy. And so when we come to the book of James... What James is doing is he is helping us to understand how to grow and mature in this lifeline of Christ. Now, uh, I think it's, it's pretty well known. We've got a lot of smart people in our church, right? So let me ask you, what is the theme of the book of James? Okay, this is what we've been practicing for, right? Okay, this is the moment of truth. Would anybody happen to remember what it is? Okay, look at that. Oh, yeah. You guys are awesome. That's right. You know, the the theme of the book of James is maturity matters. You see, when you and I come to the end of ourselves, when we realize that indeed we're sinful, we have missed the mark of really honoring God, knowing God, and enjoying God in our lives, when we trust in Christ as the payment for our sins and for life itself, you know what happens? We actually enter into relationship with the living God. We've been adopted as his children. We're like infants that he has brought into the family. And just like every parent wants their child to grow and mature, I got news for you. God wants the same for you and I. And so what he does is he gives us his word and his spirit. And the very first book of the New Testament is the one we've been studying, the book of James. This book is to help develop maturity in our lives because that's what God intends. And so let me just give you a general overview of the book. Chapter one deals with the mindset of a maturing faith in Christ. Chapter 2, all the way through 5, 6, deals with the obstacles to a maturing faith in Christ. And, and I hope you didn't miss it. And I hope you've been studying this book. Because if you do not address those obstacles, your growth will be stunted. You are not really probably going to emerge. You're going to stay a rather superficial, shallow Christian. Saved, secure, in Christ, but not very mature. Unless you address these obstacles. And they are heavy hitting. And he doesn't mince words. When you come to chapter 5, beginning in verse 7 through the rest of the book, he talks about the means of developing a maturing faith in Christ. And that's what we're looking at today. Now, as we get started here, I want to make a, a statement, and I'd like you to think about it and remember it. Adversity reveals and develops our maturity in Christ. Adversity reveals and develops our maturity in Christ. You know, when things are relatively calm and smooth, we can come across as quite mature, right? But maturity is actually revealed not in the good times so much as it is in the difficulties. Where is your faith? How do you process what you're facing? What, how, do you exercise the spiritual gifts and self-control and the fruit of the Spirit? You see, adversity not only reveals where we're really at, it also is the means by which God brings about maturity in our lives. That's how the book began. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And that's how the book ends. 
It is the means by which we really grow. And what we're to do is when we are drawing our strength from our lifeline in Christ, there's some realities that happen in our life. And the first one is, beginning in verse 7, is that we can endure with patience. Let's take a look at it. It says, verse 7, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. James is a really good pastor because he identifies with his people, and that's why he says brethren so often. You fellow believers, he says, be patient. It has the idea that you are patient with circumstances and you are patient with people. You are long-suffering. You take the long-term perspective, and he says you want to be patient when you are facing difficulty because you are understanding that Christ is at the center of your life. In fact, you not only are finding your strength in him, you are awaiting his return. Now, the early church, they, they were eagerly and, and expecting that Jesus would come in their lifetime. It was part of how they, their orientation. They expected Jesus to come. Why did they do that? Because that is how the New Testament letters were written. Jesus promised to return. They were waiting for his return, and they were looking to him. It's how they went through their difficulties and trials. So remember last time, James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, these people were facing uh, the exploitation of the rich, where rich people were making their life miserable and defrauding them. And God says in James, listen, you be patient. I am going to come. The Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of the host, is going to address the issue. And what he's saying in verse 7, you be patient until the coming of the Lord. He's going to return. Friends, for those of you who are going through some pretty bitter suffering right now, maybe you've been maligned at school or someone's ripping up your character or you're just going through some great difficulty, let me, let me give you the words of Peter on how to go through this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. It says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. Did you see that? He suffers for us, but he also gives us a model to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Though they maligned him, uh, one time they even said, you're in league with Satan. They said things about him that were absolutely not true. They slandered him at will. The eternal son of God. How did Jesus handle it? He kept entrusting himself. He didn't revile and turn. He didn't do tit for tat. What he did is I keep trusting my father. And it's that pattern of what we, of how we go through the sufferings in our life. He's kind of like a farmer. You see that, what he said about the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. Late rains. What happens is the farmer puts seed in the ground. And whatever circumstances come, whether it's drought or rain, the sun, it's night, it's through these varied circumstances that these plants grow. And the farmer knows that, and he's waiting. Even when there's difficulty, he is trusting and waiting, knowing that that seed will produce a crop. That's how you and I grow. We can endure with patience. We are taking the long-term perspective. We know that Jesus is at the work in the midst of all the problems that we're facing. And he says, notice what he says in verse 8, you too, just like the farmer, be patient. 
Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. I've got this underlined and marked in verse 8 because this is what we must do. Somehow, you and I have to break out of the mold of self-sufficiency where we learn to actively come to the Lord to renew us and to strengthen our hearts. So if I ask you, how do you strengthen your heart in the midst of the difficulties that you face? If you're like, uh, I'm not so sure actually what I do. Let me, let me give some ideas, things that I've found to be helpful. One is just to renew myself in my identity in Christ, that I'm united with Jesus, I'm eternally his, all of my sin, which is many, okay, has been covered by the blood of the Lamb, and my eternity is secure. Another thing that I find to be very helpful, and I shared this with you a few weeks ago, is just to kind of review my own personal mission statement, which is simply to walk joyfully and confidently with God and to love and lead others in the life we have in Christ. Simply by just even taking 30 seconds, especially when life gets disorienting and and I'm moving from one situation to the next and they're both grievous, just by praying through that, again, confidence in the Lord. Lord, just do your work through me. Let me give you another, um, to just read scripture. You don't read scripture like an academic exercise. What you read it as, these are love letters from God to me. Ask the question, God, why did you have this written? What am I to learn? And you come to this like, God, feed my soul through your word. And he will. You also can find great strength in being encouraged. And like the text says, strengthening your hearts through prayer. And that's what we must do. So like last night, got some pretty weighty circumstances. Thinking through things. Put on my running shoes and I just go walking through my neighborhood. It has to be in the dark so no one watches me, right? I'll tell you what I'm doing because I need my soul strengthened by him. I understand that it can't be like, well, I know that God's there and he'll just somehow work it out. No, he wants us to connect with him so that we can endure with patience. And you do so through prayer. Let me give you some others. There's just something about having faith and and camaraderie with good friends. What is it? We can have all these Christian friends, but we actually never talk about matters of substance. If you never talk about Jesus or prayer or what you're learning or encourage one another in this walk that you're in, you have a superficial friendship. God wants soul depth friendships. We can actually talk about things that are important. And by having some real friends that actually do talk about the Lord and what they're learning in the Word is so greatly encouraging and it will strengthen your heart. And let me give you a few others. Just like worship, like just this morning, coming and worshiping the Lord. That revives me. Songs that we sing to the Lord at times surface in my heart and my mind, and they carry me through the week. It's how God's designed it. The testimonies. You come tonight at our Harvest Praise Dinner, and you listen to all the people that are getting baptized. You listen to their story. It renews you and revives you. And you find that just even listening to good sermons, whether they be on the radio or on the web, or just coming from the pulpit, these words... Words from God's word, showing how they apply to your life. What they do is they revive you and they strengthen you. And that's what God wants us to do. To strengthen your hearts, verse 8, why? For the coming of the Lord is near. Yeah, it may look like chaos. You got a lot of unknowns, but Jesus is coming back and he's in our midst. And so he says, verse 9, because we are Christ-centered, we are focusing on him. Verse 9, do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged behold the judge is standing right at the door start living your life mindful that he's coming back and it's like he's like the judge is coming back and he's going to order his open up his courtroom and the truth is going to be known so live your life not tearing each up 
tearing people apart, uh, hurting them, saying things that are cruel, unkind. No, rather preserve the unity that you have in Christ because the judge, he's coming back. And he's, he's right there in the midst. And then notice verse 10. If you need an example, so what does this look like? What does it look like to go through adversity and yet hold on to God, to, go, to endure with patience? Well, look at verse 10. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You need some examples. He says, look at the prophets. Sometimes we think that, well, if you were a prophet, like God called you this unique ministry, or you're a missionary, or you're a pastor, well, but God's going to kind of put you in some sort of like little holy bubble, and you're going to be exempt from all the problems, okay? Your trials will be slight. God's going to protect you because, after all, you're in some sort of unique rule. I want you to know that from the study of Scripture and from personal experience, I would actually say that the opposite is true. It seems that as if you are called to some unique position, like in the case of like these prophets. You are, you're going to be in the midst of some special suffering, some great difficulty. I mean, let me give you some of the folks that he's referencing here, like Moses. Moses had to lead a group of people that, he, that are described as stiff-necked and rebellious. I mean, they were always whining, grumbling, complaining, wanting to go back to Egypt forsaking his leadership. They, they were making his life miserable. There was David who was hunted by Saul like, like a partridge being hunted in a mountain with all his armies. There was Elijah who had to face off with evil King Ahab and Jezebel. And there was Jeremiah. God told Jeremiah, you know, when your ministry, it's going to be one with a lot of hardship. And that's why he was actually called the weeping prophet. Or there was Ezekiel and his wife died in the course of his ministry. And there was Daniel who was torn as a kid probably about an early teenager, maybe 12, torn out of his homeland, thrown in to the abyss of Babylon. There's Hosea, and you know all about his heartbreaking marriage. You got Amos, who faced lies and scorn. John the Baptist, the final prophet, he was imprisoned and eventually beheaded at a party. See, the prophets didn't suffer because they did anything wrong. They suffered because they were doing it right Please don't mistake that if you're going through difficulty or hardship, that oh, I must be doing something wrong because they have this hardship. Actually, it might be a confirmation you're on the right track. And James would know about suffering. This isn't rhetoric. This isn't some nice platitudes he's writing here. This is life. James, as the, as the early church leader in Jerusalem, faced all sorts of hardship. You know how he ended. You know how his life ended, don't you? He so was reviled by the Jewish high priests that they decided one day, we're, we're going to finish you off. And so they did. They took him to the pinnacle of the temple. And actually, uh, it's recorded by secular historians. They threw him off the top, thinking it would kill him. Somehow, he actually survives, though he was severely wounded while he was down on the ground. And so they took clubs and stones, and they finished him off. This is the one who's writing to us. He's saying, brethren, fellow believers... You want to endure with patience, and you can, because our lifeline is our Lord. Look at verse 11. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. And now he references a guy that we really don't want to spend a lot of time with. I mean, you've read like Job once, you're like, oh, 
I would never want that for my life. I'm going to stay away from this guy, right? He references Job because there's some lessons that are critical to our well-being when we go through suffering. You see, James is referencing Job because Job understood you don't always get all the answers. We clearly see from Job's life that perseverance is not the result of understanding. Somehow we think that if, if I understood everything, well, then I will persevere. No, that's not how it worked with Job. That's likely not how it's going to work with us. Job never actually received an explanation from God for his suffering. Do you know that? And this is partly because pain is often a part of life that must be endured beyond explanations. I mean, we can know some things, but you and I are not going to know everything. God's purpose is not that we develop a mind full of explanations and answers What he's purposing us to do is to put us in a place where we trust him, even with the unknowns. I mean, somehow we think that we deserve to know all of the reasons. We demand it, and then we'll decide if we're going to trust God. If we have all the answers and we're satisfied, then we're going to put our faith in him. God doesn't work that way, and he doesn't disclose why we go through hardship. What he simply calls for is that we actually give him our faith and our trust. We simply trust in him. Yesterday, when I've been praying through this passage, kind of jotted down three reasons. Why, what, what's God's purpose in suffering? What is he doing? Some of you I know that are going through real difficulty. I've got my share of heartache and hardship. Why? Why suffering? Let me give you three reasons, three th- purposes. One, he develops spiritual maturity when we go through suffering. The fruit of the Spirit, the character of Christ, is fashioned when we go through difficulties. Let me give you another. The purpose of our sufferings is that it deepens our love for Christ. Trials can be some really dangerous places. You see, one of two things is going to happen to you and I as we're going through our trials. You're either going to get bitter and jaded or you are going to find that indeed the mercies of the Lord are new every morning and you grow in your love for him because you experience it. You seek him, you trust him, and you experience his grace in your life. But you will make that choice. That's what happens. It's one of the purposes in suffering. And let me give you a third. Why suffering? It displays the character of God through his people. God displays his character through those who are trusting him as they go through trials. In fact, look what this text says. We count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. We experience it. We taste it and we reveal it. It's what happens. So when you and I are going through our difficulties, what we need to do is go to the lifeline. And drawing our strength from the lifeline in Christ, you know what we can do? We can endure with patience. Let me give you something else that happens. Look at verse 12. When we're drawing our strength from our lifeline in Christ, we can speak with honesty. Look at verse 12. He says, but above all, i.e., like, don't miss this. My brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no that you may not fall under judgment. And what he's doing here is he is addressing a practice that was pretty common 
where they would swear upon like the temple or the foot of the temple or the platform. And they would swear and it, as if it made them look as if they were speaking truthful, but they could technically get out of it because they had priorities. Remember, Jesus actually addressed this. Remember on the Sermon on the Mount? He's like, I'm going to address some of the craziness in your life. And remember he said in chapter 5, beginning in verse 33, he says, Again, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all. And then he gives some examples of what they would do. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, or the footstool for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. You see, our speech is a reflection of our character. It's what's going on in our heart. And he says, for you, with Jesus being your lifeline, just be absolutely truthful and honest and clear in your speech. Now, some people have taken this verse and say, oh, I should never take an oath like if I'm appearing at court. And I don't actually think that that's what he's addressing. The oaths forbidden here are those that are used in casual conversation, not formal oaths taken in a court of law. Legal oaths are intended to bind. That is why perjury is such a serious crime. You said you're going to be truthful. You put your hand on the Bible. That's to meant to evoke that you're speaking truth before God and you lie as perjury. That's a serious crime in our country. And it's far more serious with God. The very one who's you put your hand on his word. But in case you're thinking like that, that doesn't really apply to us. Uh, what I'm about to say, some of you, this is going to make you feel a little uneasy. OK, but this actually happens pretty frequently. Now, I, I want to say before I go into this, I want to tell you that I think that people that do this, uh, they hardly even know what they're doing. It's become patterns of their speech. They, they don't even think about it. And I know that because I've actually talked to some different people and they're like, well, I, I don't even know why I say that. But let me tell you how you and I do this. We say this. Hey, listen, I promise you. And then we go on and say something. Or we say, I swear. And then you, you go on to say about whatever statement you're going to make. Or here's another one that's very frequent. You know, honestly, let me tell you what's happening there. It, it, it makes it look like I'm going to now, for just this next couple sentences, actually speak the truth. I normally just lie. It just I open a mouth, I start lying, but I'm going to tell you right now, I'm speaking the truth. I swear, honestly, I, I'm telling you, I promise this is what happened. Friends, you really don't want to be like that. You want to address that issue. When you speak, you are always speaking honestly. You don't have to, like, qualify it. We assume it. In fact, by you saying that, I start to assume, like, so normally when you're talking, because you haven't qualified it, it's probably not true, huh? We don't want to be like that. That's what he's addressing here. You see, our lifeline is our Lord. We just need to speak the truth. We, we can do so and live honorably. And that's all because Jesus is our lifeline. You see, when we're drawing our strength from Christ as our lifeline, we can endure with patience. We can speak with honesty. And don't miss this. Verse 13 and following, we can grow strong through prayer. If there was ever a man who could address the subject of prayer, it'd have to be James. James was so frequently known and observed to go to the Temple Mount and to pray on that stone platform that he developed calluses on his knees and he got the nickname Old Camel Knees. 
which is okay. I mean, it's an honorable name, but it's kind of like old camel needs us here. Like, oh, great. That's because he was understood prayer. Apparently, he spent so much time praying for his people and forgiveness and for the needs that were before him. You see, prayer is an unnatural activity. Apart from knowing Christ, we would never pray because we, after all, we're self-sufficient. We'll just work it out. But when you come to know Jesus, you pray. The ultimate expression of faith is prayer. And so he says, verse 13, if any among you is suffering, then he must, what? Pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. So if you're suffering, what should you do? Pray. But I mean, actually do it. Not just, well, I went to church and I heard about it. Know that you actually pray because if you want the source resources from the lifeline, you actually have to connect with God. You have to pour out your heart before him. You talk to him. And that's the difference between going through a trial well and craving. It's whether or not you are truly communing with God. You're suffering. You pray. Look at this. If you're cheerful, what should you do? Sing God's praises. You see, we take our times where life is relatively good and our happy times. We, we take them for granted. Actually, if you go through seasons where you don't have a lot of happiness in your life, you really appreciate the times that you do. How do you express that appreciation? You should sing God's praises because after all, they are from his hand. They're not because of clever decisions that you've made or you're just all that smart. No, these are blessings from God. What he wants you to do is commune with him in the midst of them. Notice what he says here in this next verse. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Whoa, that's a lot there. And let me tell you, there are a lot of interesting thoughts that come, especially in verses 14 and 15. Does God heal? Okay, so we're obviously we don't know, huh? Does he heal? Well, okay, that's good. Uh, that is the right answer. And let me let me tell you how God heals. And then we'll kind of talk about more about this. Um, God uses a variety of means to bring about healing. So the, let me just, and there are no particular order, but one way he does is that heals, he just heals through the natural bodily processes. I mean, our bodies are fascinating how they're designed and how they work. Many doctors know that your problems will be better like the next day or two. You say it and they're like, whoa, you're smart. Wow, this gal really knows what she's saying. But they know that their body brings a lot of healing. Um, By the way, I actually think that our doctors and our scientists should be our lead worshipers because they are always face to face with the greatness and the grandeur of God. And how he's expressed himself in creation. Let me give you another way that God brings about healing. Sometimes he heals through medicines. God actually allows for medicines to be discovered and to be employed. And he oftentimes he uses medicines to bring about healing. I mean, you actually see that being referenced when Paul says to Timothy in chapter 5, verse 23 of 1 Timothy, drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. He wasn't telling Timothy, you got a lot of problems as a pastor. I, include, I would uh, actually encourage you to do a lot of drinking. No, that's, that's not what he's doing there. He's, what he's doing is saying there is medicinal value to drinking wine. It'll help your stomach. I mean, being a pastor is going to give you a lot of ulcers. So let me tell you, this can be helpful. It's using medicine. Let me tell you another way that God brings healing. Sometimes he heals 
through the deliverance of our underlying fears and our resentments and our self-preoccupation and our guilt. And he does so by helping us be grounded in the gospel and knowing forgiveness and the reality of God's sovereign goodness. And it takes away a lot of the stress. And frankly, if you address those issues, a lot of people will get better. Many doctors, they're dealing with those issues. They have physical manifestations, but it's all because they, they actually suffer from bad theology or they're not applying good theology. Um, and let me give you another way that God brings healing. Sometimes he does so through like physicians and surgeons. Remember, remember what Jesus said? It's not the well, the healthy who need a physician. It's those who are sick. So these people that say, oh, you should never go to a doctor or never use a physician or never use medicine. They should actually consult with Jesus because he said, listen, if you're sick, that's why we actually have doctors and physicians. These gals and guys have been trained. They have opportunity to be very helpful to you. It's how I work. But let me give you a fifth way that God sometimes brings healing. And that is miraculously. Not always. But there are numerous examples in which God has brought about healing. You just read through the Bible. You look at Jesus' ministry. Multiple occasions. Jesus didn't heal everybody. Sometimes he stepped over a bunch of people to just get one guy at the pool of Siloam. And, you know, we've actually experienced that in our church. Last service... We had a guy who is here that he should not be here. The doctor said he shouldn't be here. He should be dead. And he is alive. In fact, he's at one of our classes right now. God sometimes miraculously heals. But he doesn't always. So when he says that if anyone is sick, we need to kind of understand this. That word there, um, aspineo, is in, in the Greek, could be used of physical maladies. And you see it as such in the Gospels. But in the rest of the New Testament and all the epistles, it speaks of someone who is weak in faith or weak, has a weak conscience. And the very next verse, so you see that in verse 14 where he says, talks about if you're sick. When he talks about in verse 15, restore the one who is sick, he uses a different Greek word, komno, which speaks of those who are weary. You see that in like Hebrews 12:3. They're weary of heart. They're weighed down. And yeah, God certainly can bring healing. And it is good to pray about our physical issues. But the context of this verse really talks about that God brings revival of the soul. It's kind of like in, when Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that our outer body is decaying day by day. You don't have to say an amen if you're experiencing that, but you know what I'm talking about, right? But the inner person is being renewed day by day. Why? Because God is at work in a person's soul. And that's what he is addressing here. When he talks about anointing with oil... There isn't something like magical with oil. This in the Jewish culture, they took oil and it was commonly used. They used it as a sign of refreshment, of acceptance, of care, and of honor. Remember when Jesus went to Simon's home and Jesus pointed out, listen, you know, I showed up and you actually forgot to put oil on my head. You didn't shake me in the hand. You didn't kiss me on the cheek and you didn't put oil on my forehead. All the things that are customary. And it, because this was meant to be like a sign of refreshment, refreshment in your presence, refreshment in being in our home. I believe that's what he's after here. You see, God does bring a restoration, a spiritual wholeness when we go through the difficulty. And the reason that you call an elder or someone who's spiritually mature is they can help you stay grounded in Christ and the reality of Jesus. And if you've sinned and there are people that are weighed down, you've done some seriously bad stuff, even maybe as a Christian. I got news for you. God never sees you in your sin, but always in the son. And what we do is help people understand the reality of being in Christ. It leads to worship, freedom, forgiveness. 
If you've got to work through some sin issues, you go get with a spiritually mature person and they will help you because they care about your soul. But what this text is driving about at is that we need to be people who are eagerly engaged with one another and engaged with God. If you really want to be the church that God intends, we need to be the people that pray with one another, that go beyond the superficial, that actually care about the condition of your soul and what you're going through. And that's what he's referring here. He says, if you want, to, if you want an example of what this looks like, look at verses 17 and 18. He picks Elijah. He says, verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. When we're praying and we're praying for each other, much can be accomplished. And then he gives this example of Elijah. Verse 17. I hope you don't miss what he said, how he qualifies Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. See, sometimes we've taken like prophets like Elijah and like he's in another category, very different than me, actually very much like you and me. Like Elijah was prone to discouragement. In fact, deep depression. Sometimes he had doubts, like how could God possibly work? He experienced some highs and he experienced some lows. He had a nature like ours. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Verse 16, consider Elijah. He had a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. And he's referencing that event in 1 Kings 17 and 18. Wickedness had overrun Israel. So God had Elijah pray because he was going to keep rain. And talk, we, we're familiar with Texas drought. This was a three-and-a-half-year drought. It was meant to bring Israel to their knees. They had all these false prophets and Baals and people were worshiping all these false gods. And God says, I told you, I gave you in my law. If you disregard me, disobey me, and you go after other gods, I'm going to get your attention. So let's start with no rain. So Elijah prays and there's no rain. And for three and a half years they exist. And finally, there's going to be this showdown. You remember at Mount Carmel, 450 false prophets of Baal and Elijah. We figured out once for all who's the one true God. Remember that? And of course, God shows himself to be the one. That he is the one true God worthy of our worship. And Elijah prays. And a small rain cloud starts developing in a heavy rainstorm after three and a half years takes place. And you know why Elijah's referenced? He's, God is inviting us to share in our understanding of allowing us to know that God works in our weaknesses. He's, are you prone to discouragement and depression? If the truth be known, most of the hands would be in the air, right? But right now, we're not, I'm not going to say that, but we all know that. It's just, you know that. And I want you to know that I know that, right? He has a nature like ours, but he prayed, despite his bouts, doubts and discouragement. And friends, that is our lifeline. It's the whore that the, 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 the hole that God has borne down from heaven to earth so that we can receive the blessings of knowing Jesus our Lord. You see, our lifeline is our Lord. Remember um, those miners I told you about at the beginning? One of them was a 19-year-old kid by the name of Jimmy Sanchez. And one of the notes that Jimmy Sanchez sent up through that hole said this, and I'll translate it to you. In his letter, he wrote this. 
there are actually 34 of us because God has never left us down here. That's our lifeline. Jesus said, I'm, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you, but you must trust in me. You come to me because after all, our Lord is our lifeline. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing passage of scripture. God, how we need you and we need your truth. So we seek your face now, but we want to do so throughout our days. We want to be of good encouragement to one another, to actually have spiritual conversations so that we will be all that you've intended us to be. God, for the the one who has come here today who has never truly trusted in Christ and they need the lifeline of Jesus, that they just simply, simply pray with me and say, God, I turn from my sin and from myself and I turn and place my faith in Jesus. And Father, you love us so deeply. We pray that we'd live in your love, trust you with our days, grow strong in faith. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.